Here's what's coming up on today's show. I keep telling people, if you see a roofer on your elderly neighbor's roof, make it your job to find out who it is, get their license plate, and run their name through your computer to see if they are licensed. And if they're not, you better warn your neighbor and then also call the agency to have them check this guy out. This is the Retire Happy Podcast with John Amarino, fiduciary financial advisor at Securus Financial in the San Diego area, and Thomas O'Connell, president of International Financial Advisory Group, Inc. in Rockaway, New Jersey. Together, they'll be keeping retirement happy from coast to coast. Welcome back to another episode of the Retire Happy Podcast. I'm your host on the West Coast, John Amarino, and I am joined, as always, by my host on the East Coast, the esteemed Mr. Thomas O'Connell. Tommy, how you doing, buddy? I'm great. How are you, John? Hope uh, you and the family had a great Easter. We did. We did. It's It's been a couple of weeks uh, since we last talked, yeah. Tommy, I, at least on the podcast we always talk, but... Uh, we had spring breaks and uh, Easter, right. and, and Tom, you had the college shopping experience. How did that go? Uh, it was certainly interesting. Uh, we did the Northeast tour this time, so we we're in Boston, Maine, New York, Connecticut. So it's it was a fun bonding experience with Emma, that's for sure. Um, and it was interesting to hear what some of the places had to say about certain things. And uh, I'll leave it at that so I don't hurt anybody's feelings. But um, it was fun. We we had a good time. That was the main thing, right? Oh, and at least I know I know part of your practice is you you've done a lot of college planning. So at least you're definitely sure. I'll be hitting you up with that with Jake here in uh, seven years. So <laughs> and enjoy the next seven. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So, folks, uh, we have a very important episode in uh, today, and it, it's gonna be it's gonna hit it's gonna hit home. It's not an easy topic to discuss, but as Tom and I always always commit to protecting you and your family against any type of financial harm. And so we're going to talk about elder abuse today. And we're fortunate to have an elder abuse attorney who is a retired San Diego County District Attorney. Our paths never crossed when I was in law enforcement. Uh, we never had any cases together, but his reputation perceived him as being a brilliant and ethical district attorney. Um, and so our guest today is Mr. Paul Greenwood of Greenwood Law Corporation here in San Diego. And talk about expertise, Tommy. He has, in 1996, the district attorney's office asked him to form and head up an elder abuse unit for the San Diego County district attorney. And, you know, he's done thousands of of cases and reviewed, you know, up to homicides, sexual assaults, false imprisonments, emotional abuse, financial exploitation of of elder abuse people. And, you know, it's a real hard thing to see. I I was on many calls and, you know, this is really what I like to call doing God's work um, because it it takes a special type of prosecutor to really, you know, have the empathy and, and to not just look at this as a case, but to look at this is a very vulnerable person. 
And, um, you know, unfortunately for the people of the county of San Diego, he retired in 2018, but he is now a consultant and opened his own firm called the Greenwood Law Group. So without any further delay, I would like to introduce Mr. Paul Greenwood. And today's guest, the founder of the Greenwood Law Corporation, it's Paul Greenwood. Gentlemen, hello. Thanks very much for having me on this podcast. I look forward to chatting with you. It's great to have you. So, Paul, um, part of our mission here on the Retire Happy podcast is to allow people to retire happy. But we know it's not all sunshines and rainbows all the time. And elder abuse is is one of the things that I saw a lot of in, in law enforcement. And you obviously, as a as a district attorney, you know, this was your life for 22 years. So kind of, you know, if you don't mind telling us your journey a little bit about um, what you did at the district attorney's office. Sure. It's been a, a very rewarding and satisfying uh, career. Uh, actually, originally from England, I was a lawyer there for 13 years. Uh, my San Diego wife, to whom I've been married for almost 45 years now, the love of my life, she, uh, no, I don't blame her for this, she got homesick while she was living under those cloudy gray skies in uh, England. And through some health challenges too, we decided that it was best for me to bring her back to San Diego. So we came in 91. And after two years in, in the kind of somewhat legal wilderness, uh, I had the great fortune to apply to the DA's office and join them in 1993. And after kind of three years of doing your typical drug cases, your burglaries, your your street robberies, I got the call from the elected DA to come into his office uh, in late 1995. And he just basically told me the blunt truth that he'd had a call from adult protective services telling him that our office was ignoring a huge escalating crime called elder abuse. And I looked at him and said, what's that? He said, I don't know, but you're about to find out because I just named you as the first head of the first ever elder abuse prosecution unit. And, you know, when I left that office after that briefing, I honestly thought, well, I'll do it for three years. You know, I'm a team player, but I really want to get into the hardcore prosecutions that we all dream of doing. Well, how wrong I was, because this became my assignment for the next 22 years until I uh, left the office in 2018, as you mentioned. The main reason why uh, it became my career path was because it lit a fire in me. Um, I, I was hearing and seeing stories of perpetrators who were not being held accountable. And that really did light a fire because I was uh, replicating these stories with how would I feel if this had happened to my own parent, and my, both my parents were from the World War II generation. My dad was a bomber pilot in World War II and he survived 79 bombing missions. My mom was a survivor of the London Blitz. And I kept coming back to them thinking, how would I feel? And that fire that lit inside me never went out. And in fact, it's still there today. And this is why since I left the office in 2018, I as you say, I opened up my own practice because I want to share the lessons that I've learned in the courtroom over 22 years of prosecuting these cases with a wider audience such as yours uh, today. Yeah. And, you know, I remember going to scenes where you would see just horrific 
neglect. And, you know, like you said, that's it's a real tough thing. And, and you know, we're going to we're going to talk about it a little bit later. But, you know, to see some of the caretakers or even their own family members do this, it's and it's it's not an easy thing to very similar to dealing with crimes against children. It's a hard thing mm-hmm. to not get emotionally tied to. But to really, you know, it takes a toll on a person investigating these. So, you know, my hat's off to you kind of uh, from one law enforcement, former law enforcement professional to another to, to be able to do what you did for two decades. Um, oh, no, that's incredible. Well, well, thank you. I mean, I was fortunate, uh, John, because, you know, working in a, a great office uh, that I had there, the San Diego District Attorney's Office. One of the benefits of starting a brand new program is nobody knows when you're doing it wrong. So I was given the kind of a free reign to think outside the box. And, and I think sometimes prosecutors feel too restrained and, and, and uh, they feel that, gosh, I can't do this because I'm stepping out of line and, and I don't want to upset people. Whereas I didn't have anything to compare it to. So I was able to to explore new areas and new avenues. And, you know, because of that, it kept me absolutely challenged every single day. And I never once did I experience what I call burnout, which sometimes you get with other types of prosecution. Right. So, Paul, um, there there are, I, I would imagine, various aspects to elder scams and abuses and things like that. So I, I think what we'll start off with today, if it's all right with you, uh, is maybe talking about the, the financial elder abuse that we see. Um, what, what are maybe some of the more common scams that we're seeing? Sure. And I, when I talk about elder fraud or elder financial exploitation, you know, you, you kind of make a distinction between the exploitation which is going on through the, the classic scams on the internet or through the telephone or through the mail. And they, they are sort of one segment, which I will talk about now. And then there's the other segment, which is the in-person, sometimes family-related frauds that, that mm-hmm. go on right there within the home. But dealing first with that sector of internet, telephone, mail, Because of the pandemic, uh, we've seen a huge increase in the number of at least reported cases of suspected uh, elder exploitation through these scams. People have become more isolated. They've become more uh, reliant upon external communications such as emails, such as phone calls, such as regular mail. And so we've seen also a desire by older people who have lost a loved one, whether it be a spouse, a partner, on a dating uh, relationship maybe, they've reached out through internet websites. And that's where the number one scam has popped up in the last three years, which is the romance scam. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, it's taken its toll on a lot of older adults. And the biggest red flag, as we know, is that the the suspect steals the identity of a, a real person, convinces the victim that this is who they are, but they'll never, ever go on a Zoom call or a FaceTime call or a Skype call because that will blow their cover. They will arrange to meet at some point in the future. The victim will fall in love, literally, over the Internet with this person 
and then, quote, a tragedy will befall the suspect where they all now start asking for money. So in the last two and a half, three years, I've been inundated with stories and trying to actually help some victims connect with law enforcement and tell their story. And in many cases, they have lost their life savings to these uh, crooks and, and scammers. So that's just, Tommy, that's just one example of the many types of scams uh, that are out there. All right, so Paul, um, you, know, you mentioned the internet scam. Another one that I've heard a lot of lately, um, and I have heard a great deal of the, the romance scams, is also the, the, the Facebook deep fake type of scams where the grandparents are getting messages about from their grandchildren saying I, I'm I'm in trouble I'm in Mexico or I'm in jail have, have you seen any of those where it's they're they're using the exploitation of the the grandchildren um, and their identity to scam money oh absolutely uh, and in fact that's been around a very very long time and the problem now is that because of the advent of artificial intelligence, the scammers are now using AI to actually mimic the real voice of a grandchild. Uh, I mean, it used to be pretty clever in, in the past, before AI came along the scene, where the suspect would, would masquerade as the grandchild and, and the victim would say, but that doesn't sound like you, Tommy. And the suspect would say, well, actually, because I was involved in a car accident, I broke my nose. And that's why I sound different. Again, I, I, I do a lot of these uh, education outreaches. In fact, I'm doing one on Wednesday uh, in Oceanside at an elder community. And I always tell these uh, audiences, number one, your grandson will never call you from jail. Or number two, if he does, leave him there. You know, and that always gets a laugh, but, it, but it's true because 99% of the time, uh, if not 100% of the time, it, it is all a fake. And if only a victim would stop and pause and, and hit that pause button, the trouble is these scammers know exactly how to get to our emotions. And when we are faced with a potential family drama, we will, the logic will leave us. Uh, and our hearts will control our actions. So when the scammer uh, tells us, go to your bank and, and get money out and then go to Walgreens and purchase prepaid cards, gift cards, our logic leaves us and, and we're not thinking correctly. If only we could stop and say, well, hold on, maybe I should be uh, calling my grandchild just to make sure uh, that they're not in jail. And invariably, that never happens. Uh, and these victims only find out later. And here's the other problem. When we've got victims of the grandma scam, many times they never tell people they are a victim. So we don't really know the extent of how serious this uh, problem is. And why do you think that is? Embarrassment? Yes. I mean, and I've talked to so many of these victims during my career as a prosecutor when we would ultimately find out, and sometimes it w we would find out from an adult relative or from the bank or somebody else, and I would gently ask them, why didn't you want to tell anybody? And invariably it is out of sheer embarrassment. And many times the victims never want their own adult children 
to discover that they've lost their life savings or, or a large amount of money because they fear, incorrectly though, they fear that the adult child is suddenly going to swoop them up, take them out of their own homes and place them in, quote, a safe environment where they won't become a victim of another scam. So I, I can see the emotional side of that where, um, you know, where people are embarrassed, like you were saying, Paul. Now, it's not only the the email and, and Facebook scams that are going on these days. There's also, um, as you were uh, mentioning at the beginning, unfortunately, in-home care or, or uh, abuse or, or family abuse of sorts, um, you know, maybe uh, a family members nefariously taking money or, or not being true fiduciaries for their parents or siblings or aunts, uncles, grandparents, whomever. So um, I, I'm sure you've run into a lot of that as well. Oh, I mean, probably the uh, one of the most common defendants that I've ever prosecuted is, well, firstly, it's the son. Let me tell you about him. I know him so well because I've prosecuted him many, many times. He's aged between 35 and 55, and he's living at home with his widowed mother. And in almost every single case, he's lazy and unemployed. And whenever I've spoken to his mother, I say, how come your 48-year-old son isn't working? Ah, oh, she says, he tells me he has a medical condition that prevents him from working. I say, let me guess, he's got a bad back. And she says, how did you know? I said, well, it comes from sitting on your sofa eight hours a day playing Fortnite video games. <laughs> And I know there's a little bit of cynicism that creeps in there, but it's so true. It's so accurate. And these sons have an addiction. It's either drugs, which is typically methamphetamine, alcohol, which is typically either beer or vodka, or thirdly, it's gambling. And those addictions cost money. Well, what does he do when he's living at home with his mother? The first thing he'll do when he's addicted to one of these things is steal something that will convert into cash. And the number one item that he steals is her jewelry. And then when she finds out that he's stolen her jewelry, she'll confront him. And that's where the physical altercation starts. And that's where I, how come she ends up in the emergency room with a black eye. And so that's invariably how I found out about these cases, because the mother would never tell me directly or call the police and tell the police that her son was exploiting her. But when she ends up with an injury, that's when we discover all these other things. And, and tragically, if we don't intervene, as happened with my last homicide prosecution that I did, um, the, the family person will actually murder the uh, elderly relative. And, and that's why it's so important uh, that we identify any red flags, that we intervene at the earliest opportunity, and we don't allow victims to dictate whether or not a case gets prosecuted or not. I just want to also mention caregivers. Uh, they were the other frequent flyer defendant that I had. And again, these would be caregivers who had not been screened thoroughly They'd either been hired through nextdoor.com or through Facebook or through Craigslist or some other social media avenue uh, and sometimes through a bonded insurance uh, insured agency. But invariably, the screening was lapsed. And so you've got uh, somebody with a minor criminal record taking care of an older adult with an addiction. And it's typically drugs or alcohol. And then again, they start stealing the same things, the jewelry and the checks, and so it goes on. 
What I tell adult children, and I hope there will be adult children listening to your podcast who are maybe on the verge of retirement, but who have an aging parent. This is what I always tell them. I, I, I say, look, if you're going to have a change in their lifestyle, if, for example, you are now hiring a caregiver for the first time to take care of an aging parent, I please, please write a letter to your parents' bank or credit union and say, dear sir or madam, I want you to be aware that there's, be, there's going to be a change in circumstances in my parents' lifestyle. They are now going to be allowing into their home a caregiver who will probably have access to my parents' checkbook, to my parents' debit card. Please, I beg you, keep a close eye on my parents' financial statement. And if you see an irregularity in withdrawals, in suspicious activity, please contact Adult Protective Services at the earliest opportunity. Now, if more adult children wrote that letter, I guarantee you that it would put the bank or the credit union on notice and woe betide them if they refuse to uh, honor that request. And that's a great, great uh, point, Paul. With that, do you see, you know, when when those letters are received by the banks, by the people that do them, do you actually see the banks um, taking those seriously or do they just kind of, okay, you know, we got a letter, move, move along. It's We don't know, you know, this person is a trusted contact or whatnot. Yeah, it's a mixture. Uh, some, unfortunately, will just uh, pass it to one side. But I think that, and I just speak from experience with, you know, 25 years as a prosecutor, what got my attention was any time that my bosses floated down a letter onto my desk. You know, you, you ignore a letter at your peril uh, because it's got a stamp on it and now it's in your inbox and, you know, you've got to, you've got to react to it. So I, I think that, um, unfortunately, uh, not enough people write letters these days. And, and it is a letter rather than an email or a phone call. Because if you make a phone call to your parents' bank, they're going to shut you down. Well, I'm sorry, I can't discuss anything about your mother's account because you're not on it. End of story, click. Whereas a letter, they can't push back on that. Right. And, you know, from our, from our financial standpoint, uh, many financial ins- institutions, and you know, we deal with TD Ameritrade, has the trusted contact form. So that's a, a big thing that if, you know, like Paul said, if something there, there is this change in which you have a caregiver, you know, talk to, to your parents about, hey, this is just an extra line of security. Let's get someone in the family added as a trusted contact. As a suggestion, then I, that letter, I would just Make sure that on that letter, it carbon copies an attorney, an accountant, someone of quote unquote authority of sorts, so that now the bank can't say, "Oh, well, we never got that letter, right?" Well, now now we know there if there's a tra- some tracking number that you sent it priority mail or FedEx. Now you have two backups uh, to say, "Hey, no, you, we know you did get that." Yeah, uh, you know, the, yeah, the more people you could include in that correspondence, as you say, um, a professional advisor, uh, an attorney, whoever, uh, excellent idea. And I really do, uh, following up on your point about trusted contacts, you know, I, I, I have to applaud people like FINRA and other investment uh, professionals who have really tried to uh, make the rules more user friendly. 
and give more protections to senior investors uh, because uh, we do need more and more of those trusted contacts so that it gives the brokerage the ability to contact somebody other than the investor if they suspect that there is some unusual activity going on. Yeah, and you know, and I I will even put it on our industry that you know that trusted contact is could even be important uh, against a rogue you know advisor that's scamming uh, investors. I mean, that's not even that's not even held to elderly people. That's around the clock. Uh, you know, uh, there's there's always a bad apple in in every profession. So that's another reason I do like the trusted contacts also. So Paul, um, you know, we've obviously talked about uh, the caretaker, the family members, the close to home stuff. We've talked about some internet, um, you know, uh, targeting, but there's also companies that, you know, when they come across elderly, you know, elderly people, whether it's uh, maintenance in the house or or an issue like a, a flood that they will take advantage of a person that you know is elderly and may upcharge them and you know you actually helped me out not on a case where you know my my client was definitely is very sharp and and brought this to my attention but you know companies upcharging elderly to do work what do you say about that and how how often is that being seen and I'm glad you've raised that, John, because it's prevalent uh, out there. And, and it's not just what we call rogue, unlicensed contractors, but it can also involve licensed companies, too. I'll give you an example of each. Uh, with unlicensed contractors, most states have laws requiring particular professions to be licensed within their state. So, for example, in California, plumbers, electricians roofers, uh, general contractors, they all need to have a license. And we do have a, a law, thankfully, in California that says, if you are doing anything over $500 in value of work, of home improvement, you have to be licensed by the state. And if you're not, and you're doing that work as an unlicensed contractor, you are actually committing a crime right there. And so the kind of cases that I prosecuted of unlicensed contractors was um, roofers pretending to be repairing leaks on roofs. In one of the cases, I had a guy come inside to this elderly widow's home and use a syringe to uh, squirt Coke, Coca-Cola, onto the ceiling. And then it forms a damp patch and he looks up and says, hey, you, you, you've got a problem here. This is clearly moisture coming through from the roof. It's got to be, it's got to be repaired straight away. Otherwise, the roof is going to collapse. So, so they use these kinds of tactics to scam the driveway scams, the termite fumigators uh, who try to convince the, uh, the senior citizen that in the attic there is a whole infestation of rodent droppings. And what they're doing is they're showing on their iPhones photographs of, uh, of real cases, but not in that particular attic. It's all designed not only to scare, but to extract large sums of money from, from the older adult. Even with licensed contractors, uh, I've had cases where licensed contractors have clearly ripped off the older consumer. One of my most memorable cases involved a garage door 
company who were nationwide, uh, who were op operating in probably every state in the country. And they were training their technicians that when they, they get a call out to actually upsell things that were not required and also to charge an exorbitant fee. Now, now, if any of us have ever been basically locked in our garages and you can't open the garage door and you need to be somewhere, we're desperate. And so these garage door technicians knew exactly how to prey upon that kind of emotion. And in several of my cases, the technician would charge two, three, four thousand dollars for a simple repair on the garage. Here's the problem, though, John, is that when somebody uh, is ripped off that way and they try to make a police report, typically the response from law enforcement is, well, hold on, that's, that's a civil matter. That mm -hmm. involves a breach of contract. That involves a, a, a price differential. And I'm pushing back on that saying, excuse me, but no, um, please don't you make that determination whether it's a civil matter because you're not qualified to do that. Just like I'm not qualified to put handcuffs on people. Uh, let me or one of my colleagues make that determination whether it's civil or criminal. So just just because a police officer tells you it's, quote, just civil, don't let that put you off from pushing hard against that. And the other resource that I would say is contact your state uh, license agency that actually issues licenses. Uh, we're very fortunate in California to have a, an aggressive uh, contractor state license board who have their own investigators who actually go out on these cases, provide photos, provide expert witnesses to make my job when I was a prosecutor a lot, lot easier. But we've got to be out, out there looking out for our neighbors who are housebound. I keep telling people, if you see a roofer on your elderly neighbor's roof, make it your job to find out who it is, get their license plate and run their name through your computer to see if they are licensed. And if they're not, you better warn your neighbor and then also call the agency to have them check this guy out. Hey, Paul, do you have the information of the uh, state agency? Because I, th I think that's important, um, you know, and we utilize that in, in the one client you were helping me out with. Um, that Do you have that on handy or is that something we can put in the show notes later on? Yeah, well, in um, the... California, it's it's called cslb.ca.gov. So CSLB stands for Contractor State License Board. And then it's .ca, which is California.gov. Now, if you're in another state, what you just you just do a Google search for, you know, your state licensing agency that issues licenses for contractors, and then that will pop up. So, so Paul, um I'll go back to the financial abuse um, for for just a moment. Then, in the event mm -hmm. someone discovers that, who who are who are they supposed to contact? The attorney general's office, or is there? Do a lot of states have a financial abuse, say, hotline or something like that? Well, again, it all depends on who's making the report. Uh, some states, like California have a list of what we call mandated reporters, uh, including uh, banks credit unions, including caregivers, including of all people, clergy as well. So if you're a mandated report in your state, then you probably have an obligation to cross-report immediately to either your adult protective services and or your local law enforcement. Now, what I say to some folks is that if you report to local law enforcement, try to do it, unless it's 
a real life-threatening emergency. Try to do it on a non-emergency line, but take your time to uh, do your research to find out what code section you believe is being violated. Now, in, in California, the elder abuse code section for financial abuse as well as for physical abuse is what we call Penal Code Section 368. And I always give out those three numbers to my audiences. And the reason is, it gives you street credibility. When you want to contact law enforcement and say, hey, officer, I got a good case of an allegation of Penal Code Section 368. I tell you what, they will, they will listen. And they go, this person knows what they're talking about. So, um, and, but if you get pushback from law enforcement and they say, uh, it's just a civil matter, I would say, well, look, Firstly, write a letter to the police chief or to the sheriff. Secondly, contact your local prosecutor's office as well. And thirdly, there's no harm in contacting your state attorney general's office as well. So, Paul, I'm I'm imagining that there are probably uh, certain telltale signs that someone is being abused, whether it's physically, emotionally, financially. Uh, What would you say that uh, some of the, uh, the more prevalent ones would be? Sure. And let me preface this by saying that during my 22 years there as head of the Elder Prosecution Unit, I had countless phone calls from adult children of an elderly person where they had just discovered that their elderly parent was a victim of maybe financial exploitation at the hands of a caregiver. And I would let them tell the story to a point and then I would interrupt. And I would say, well, how long has this been going on for? And they would tell me, well, I've just, I discovered it. It's been going on for about 14 months. And then I would ask them this question. Where were you during that 14 months? And invariably, that gets uh, a very uh, rude response. They would then make every excuse under the sun why they were not involved in their elderly parent's life. And it shows me that really their anger and their frustration now is not because their parent is a victim, it's because they've just discovered that, that their own inheritance has been squandered. So my, my call to adult children is, you need to be involved on a daily, on a weekly, on a monthly basis with an aging parent who does not live with you. And if you are not involved, then watch out. So my, my elderly mother, bless her heart, before she passed away at age 96, obviously living in England, 6,000 miles away. What I did for nine years, while uh, d- during the time that my father with Alzheimer's was in, a, was in a nursing home, for those nine years that my mother lived alone, before I went to work, I FaceTimed with her every single morning. That way, I was able to assure myself that as I went off to work to try to help protect the older people in San Diego, that my own mother was not a victim of a crime that particular day. So, so I, I, some of the red flags is looking for any difference in routine. Uh, we're all creatures of habit, and certainly our elderly relatives are no different. Uh, in fact, the older you get, the more almost regimented your routine becomes. So when you see a, a, a variation to that routine, that should at least create some curiosity in you to ask questions. If there's conversation from an elderly relative, oh, I've met this wonderful new friend. Be very, very aware. Ask questions. Who is this? Where did you meet them? What have they told you about themselves? 
if a distant relative shows up on the doorstep of your elderly relative and they haven't been in touch for years, what are they doing there? What's their motivation? Um, if your uh, elderly relative you want to go visit and somebody is telling you, oh, no, don't, don't, don't come by today. This is not a good day. Uh, your mother's unwell. Red flag. If you can't get there because you live a long way away, either make it your job to jump on an airplane and get there or call your local adult protective service and say, you know, this may be nothing, but would you mind doing a welfare check on my mom just to make sure that everything is fine? But that my gut tells me that something is not quite right. You know, our gut reactions are often absolutely correct. And I think we should be guided by our gut feelings, particularly with people that we know so well, our own aging relatives. Yeah, that, that's those are great points. And, you know, we've covered so much here in the last 30 or so minutes, Paul. What I'd like to kind of close the, the show out, if it's okay with you, are, you know, when, you, when you're teaching people, and, and let's use the internet romance or the internet uh, scam where the grandchildren are calling, do you advise, or are there any proactive steps that we can start planning in the listeners' heads to not only safeguard themselves, but also safeguard their own aging parents and say, hey, listen, if your grandchild calls you, with this issue, make sure you call them on their cell phone first. You know, if they're sending you a Facebook message, I say, call them back or call us. Um, you know, are there some proactive steps that our listeners and, and our clients can do to really help safeguard themselves from, you know, we'll, we'll start with the internet uh, scams. We already kind of talked about the caretaker, but really, just things to safeguard their finances and their well-being against the scams out there. Sure. And I think it comes down to uh, having a chat and with uh, your aging parents about the realities in life now. It's ironic, isn't it? Because our parents would have these chats with us as we were becoming teenagers. You know, don't talk to strangers. Don't get in a stranger's car. <laughs> And now it's in reverse. We're having to have these blunt conversations with aging parents. When you get a phone call and it's somebody that you don't know, please do not give them any information about yourselves. And, and, and I would certainly encourage adult children to emphasize to an aging parent, before you make any decision, please check with me first. I would uh, encourage uh, adult children to encourage their own parents. Uh, if it's important and the phone rings, somebody will leave you a message. Don't always pick up the phone. Let it go to message. And if it goes to message and it's a legitimate thing, they will leave a phone number. They will leave a message. And the, But then before you call them back, you call that trusted adult relative and say, hey, I've had this weird message. What do you think? The more people we can include in our decision-making that we trust, the safer it will become for, for all of us. Yeah. And, you know, understanding, you know, talk, uh, you as the listener, understanding and, and educating your parents that, you know, the IRS doesn't come knocking on your door uh, with the police and the, the, the search warrant. That doesn't happen. They don't call you. Uh, and They don't a, text you. 
and and Paul, you mentioned it early. You shouldn't be paying anything in gift cards or you know uh, bitcoins or or whatnot. Correct? Yeah, I mean that's a huge red flag. Anybody asking you for money, even where you get the phone call from quote a charity. You know, I get I get bombarded with these quote police foundation calls. And they're asking you to pledge money. Maybe it's just in the in the wake of a police officer being shot. And so we're all into, oh, you know, I want to help people. But that's what the scammers are out there absolutely looking to capitalize on an existing tragedy. So I do think we need to uh, make our parents aware of all these types of scenarios where uh, the scammers are out there looking for opportunities. And I do need to put in a plug, actually, for AARP Fraud Watch Network, because they they have a lot of great resources. And and even if you're not a member of AARP, it doesn't matter. They will help you. And they will help with resources. They'll help connect you. They'll even have a free counseling service where you've got victims who feel wretched about themselves, who feel uh, that they, they've, they're almost getting into a depression because they've lost their money. That service is available uh, where people will listen. They will not uh, ridicule you and they'll not condemn you for being a victim. They will try to make you feel better about the, the circumstances. Yeah. That, that's- here, here in New Jersey, I, I would also throw out throw a, a big shout out to the Better Business Bureau of New Jersey because they've been very proactive of uh, reaching out to the senior community and and people such as that in order to say hey if you have a problem if you're not sure about something call us reach out to us uh, because we'll do the investigation for you and uh, I, I'm a former chairman of the board of the Better Business Bureau of New Jersey, and I know the staff uh, down in Trenton has done a phenomenal job with that. Well, that's a great shout out, Tommy. I'm glad you mentioned BBB because um, when I was uh, in prosecuting unlicensed contractor cases that I referred to earlier, I would often call in a, a law student who would be working in our office and say, I want you to find me three more victims of the same suspect. And they, they would look at me and go, well, how can I do that? I said, the first thing you need to do is contact the Better Business Bureau. And I liken them to the CIA. The BBB know everything in our local community. Uh, and they're the one agency that older adults who have been ripped off will call and make a complaint to. So invariably, uh, thanks to the Better Business Bureau, I would then obtain three more victims because they had done at least a complaint to them. And they keep a database of suspects. So it's Mm -hmm. really a good resource. So I'm glad you've mentioned that. Yeah. Well, Paul, um, that was a great, great deal of phenomenal information. It's it's a tough topic to talk about. Uh, You know, no one wants to think of themselves as being vulnerable. Uh, No one wants to think of a family member hurting another loved one. But the reality of it, um, that that happens. That's life. And, you know, I would like to extend your services to all our listeners. You've, as I mentioned, you helped me out um, with, you know, reporting a contractor um, that one of my clients was having issues with. So if any of our listeners uh, want your help or, or, you know, any of, if a HR person or a business is listening, 
How can we reach you? Well, uh, thank you, John. Uh, and uh, if they can just understand, uh, I have two specific roles. One of my passions, and this is the first role, is teaching and training. So if there's anybody out there uh, within a company, uh, within a financial institution, or within an investment brokerage, who would like some either online uh, trainings or in-person trainings, feel free to contact me, and I'm going to give you my email address in a moment. The second role that I have is as a consultant to other attorneys who may find themselves in a uh, area of litigation of elder abuse that they're not familiar with, such as using how do I prove undue influence in a financial exploitation case, for example. And so I'm very open and I am very eager to help other lawyers and their clients uh, sort of go through that minefield. So my email address, it's my first name, Paul, at greenwoodlawcorp.com. So it's all one word, Greenwood Law Corp. So paul at greenwoodlawcorp.com. Feel free to email me there. And all I ask is that when you do email, if you could just keep it brief, uh, and I'll be more than happy to, to respond to whatever you, the issue is. Great. Thanks, Paul. And yeah, we're going to have a lot of these resources that Paul mentioned, uh, along with his contact information in our show notes. Uh, So visit the retirehappypodcast.com and you'll have all the links uh, with the penal codes that he mentioned and and the AARP links. And uh, Paul, we truly appreciate you taking time out of your busy day uh, to help educate and, and I'm going to I'm going to have to even uh, have you out to one of our uh, client seminars to uh, talk to my clients and educate us a little bit more. So thank Thanks. you. I, I would love that. Uh, absolutely, gentlemen. I, uh, thank you for using this medium uh, to get the message uh, out there to, to, to folks. It, it's critical. And I so I appreciate the opportunity. Great, great. Well, folks, that wraps up another episode of the Retire Happy Podcast. Uh, Again, we'd like to give many thanks uh, to our expert guest, Mr. Paul Greenwood of Greenwood Law Corp. And folks, uh, don't neglect, you know, to check in on your loved ones. Um, And if something feels wrong, as Paul said, go with your gut. Right. Go with the gut. So, Tommy... I uh, bid you adieu on another great episode with another great guest. Thank you, John. It was great uh, catching up with you again. It's uh, with the spring breaks and the holidays. It's been a little while. So uh, we'll be back in action, ladies and gentlemen, very quickly, uh, turning it around with another podcast coming in the next uh, two weeks, I think. Right, John? Yep. Yep. So until then, folks, look out for one another. Look out for your neighbors. Look out for your family members. Take care of yourself and retire happy. Take care. It's easy to get in touch with John and Thomas. If you're more on the West Coast, give John a call at 858-935-6210. That's 858-935-6210. Or go online to gosecurus.com. That's gosecurus.com. If you're more of an East Coaster, then call Thomas, 973-394-0623. That's 973-394-0623. And online at internationalfinancial.com. That's internationalfinancial.com. And you can, of course, always just check the description or the show notes section of today's show for all that contact information. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcasting apps, and we'll see you next time on the Retire Happy Podcast.
Investment advisory services offered through Brookstone Capital Management, LLC BCM, a registered investment advisor. BCM, Securus Financial, and International Financial Advisory Group are independent of each other. Insurance products and services are not offered through BCM, but are offered and sold through individually licensed and appointed agents. The opinions expressed by John Iamarino, Thomas O'Connell, and guests on this show are their own and are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Past performance cannot be used as an indicator to determine future results. Any strategies mentioned may not be suitable for everyone. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for you. Before acting on any information mentioned, please consult with a qualified tax or investment advisor to determine if it is suitable for your specific situation. This program is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information with regard to the subjects covered.